Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Hey, if you want to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, we're going to continue our series. Man, wasn't worship good this morning? Man. See, here's one of the things I found about um, the banjo. It's impossible to be sad around a banjo. Like, if you can be sad around a banjo, you, like, you got problems. It's just so much joy on it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we sang something this morning that's incredible. We sang such a great declaration this morning. Everything I ever wanted, I have found in you. Whoa, come on with that. You can take that one home, all right? Sing that, sing that every day. Every day. Because the truth is, um, even to the degree that not every desire we have is found in Jesus, every desire we have points us to the greater desire that we actually have in Jesus. Every desire that we that have that, that falls outside of, the, outside of the person of Jesus is actually just the Spirit of God trying to wake us up to the only place that can satisfy. It's a, it's a powerful word. Uh, you should sing it. It has nothing to do with the message. Awesome. Luke chapter 23. We're going to continue our series here at the Vineyard on the passion of Jesus. It's our third message in the series. Um, and we're investigating the passion of Jesus, A, because it is nearing the time, uh, we're nearing Holy Week, and we're nearing Easter, so that'd be one reason, but we're also talking about the passion of Jesus, because here at the Vineyard, we want to be passionate people, and uh, that's, that's the kind of people we are here at the Vineyard, uh, but we want to be a particular sort of passionate people, if I can say it this way. There are all different kinds of passion, and we've talked a little bit in the, in the last few weeks about the different varieties of passion. We've talked about zeal, like having zeal, like intense feelings. Zeal that's, that goes beyond logical conclusions. That's, that's considered passion. There's ardent love, that's passion. There is deep commitment, and that's passion. But then there's another aspect of passion, and it's the one that's found in Jesus specifically, and it's the willingness to suffer. It's the willingness to embrace the pain. And we want to be people at the vineyard who, who embrace passion at Jesus' level. We want to be zealous. We want to be deeply committed. We want to be crazy in love. And we want to be people who are willing to embrace the pain. Does this mean that we go out and we look for the pain? No, that's stupid. That's stupid. The pain is not the point. The point is to follow Jesus, and in following Jesus, there will be pain, and we will embrace the pain because we will not stop following Jesus. Does this make sense? That's the passion we want to have at the vineyard. That's the passion we want to have. And so this morning, we want to pick up the text again, starting in verse 26, and we want to meditate further on the passion of Jesus. Let's look at verse 26. Such an important verse. Verse 26 says this, As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. We'll stop right there. If you've got your Bible open, and if it's a real Bible with actual pages, and if you have a pen, you should underline it. If you have a virtual Bible, you should double-click it. And you should highlight, put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind, the Je- behind Jesus. Behind the Jesus. That too. I speak for a living. The thing I want us to see this morning is that the symbolism shouldn't be lost on us. It's plain. It's clear. It's right up front. 
Everyone who follows Jesus, everyone who's behind Jesus gets a cross. Everyone who's behind Jesus gets a cross. Whereas Simon, he's behind Jesus. He's following Jesus. It's a clear connection. It's explicit. Followers of Jesus will also carry the cross. And the truth of the matter is, it's true for me and it's true for you. We wish that it weren't so. We wish that it weren't so. We tell ourselves things like this. But I'm a son. I'm a daughter. When confronted with the cross, we tell our things or we tell ourselves things like this. I'm free. I'm at Jesus and I'm free. We tell ourselves things like this. I'm blessed. And not only am I a son or a daughter, but I'm his favorite. All true. Yet the cross awaits. You see, if the Son of God, very freedom in human skin, blessed like no other in history, the apple of the Father's eye, favorite upon favorite, if He had a cross, will not the sons and daughters who follow Him have one as well? You see, the cross is how we transition from being a part of the crowd into being a follower of Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds. For lots of good reasons, too. Jesus healed the sick, ruined every funeral, cast devils out of people who were oppressed. One time he took two fish and a couple loaves of bread, broke it and fed thousands of people. It's a good chance he did it a couple times. He had this knack for always making sure there was enough. So there was this thing that happened around him. There was always crowds around Jesus. How many of you know that you're actually not called to be a part of the crowd? Jesus didn't say, come and be a part of the crowd. Jesus actually calls disciples to be followers. And the way that we transition from leaving the crowd and becoming a true follower is to pick up the cross. You see... Simon had come from 800 miles away. He had come in for Passover. He was on pilgrimage. And he was just a part of the crowd. There is, there is zero reason to believe that Simon was a believer in Jesus whatsoever. And they laid the cross on him. And he followed Jesus, left the crowd, became a disciple. And we know from a couple other, a couple other places in the New Testament that there became a legacy of faith in this man's moment. In Mark chapter 15, there's a little nugget that's not in the Gospel of Luke, but in Mark chapter 15 it says, they pulled Simon from the crowd and he had his two sons with him. And they named the sons. One of the sons was Rufus. And then when you flip over a few pages to the book of Romans, go all the way to the back, in chapter 16, Paul says, Paul gives, Paul, Paul talks about Rufus. And one of the things that we see here is that a man who was a part of the crowd picked up the cross, became a follower, and a legacy of faith was established in his family forever. What, is it, what does it mean to be passionate? It means to leave the crowds. It means to pick up the cross. It means to follow Jesus in the pain and not just the excitement. So you might ask this morning, what is the cross? And where could one find it? Well, your cross... And my cross is the painful part of our calling. 
It's the painful part of our calling. And every single person in the room has a calling before God. He leaves no one out. And so if you embrace your calling, somewhere in your calling, you're going to find a cross. If you've embraced your calling and it's all been roses, get ready. It's the painful aspect of following Jesus. Where's the cross? It's in your calling. And then what is it? This is what the cross is. The cross is being a son. The cross is being a daughter. The cross is being blessed. The cross is being a favorite. The cross is being a person whose whole being is filled by the loving Father so that all of our joy and all of our life come from Him. And then He turns to us and He says, Freely you've received, now freely give. Take your blessing. That thing most valuable to you. Pour it out someone who's not worthy. Sometimes we hear the Lord say, freely you've received, freely give. And we look for some worthy person. And we withhold until we find just the right person. It's a stall tactic. Find the worst person. Find the biggest jerk. Find the man or the woman who's most likely to soil the thing that you hold most valuable. Go ahead and give it away. Picking up the cross is taking our blessing and giving it away. We're blessed to be a blessing, just like Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, Why don't you leave your whole family? Take your wife. I'm going to lead you out to a place you've never been before. And I know you don't have any kids, but I'm going to make you the father of nations. Abraham, why don't you go ahead and look up at the sky? Count the stars. Can you count them? No, you can't. That's how many sons and daughters I'm going to give you, Abraham. And so for 25 years, Abraham wanders out in the desert with his goats and his sheep and his wife and no kids. What's the cross? The cross is to have a promise and then wander in the desert where there is no promise. And then he gets a son. And it's not just any son, it's his favorite son. The son of his right hand. The son that he's waited his entire life for. The son that he suffered ridicule for. The son that he waited for, that he waited for, that he waited for. And then God says, take your son and offer him to me. Build an altar. Sacrifice him to me. That's the cross. And then God says, I know your heart. Don't offer him. Here's a lamb. And then there's Joseph, his father's favorite. He had a jacket to prove it. Where does Joseph end up? In a hole. Sold as a slave. Goes to Egypt. Ends up in prison. Wrongly accused. How many of you all want to be a favorite son? What does it mean to be a favorite son? What it means to be a favorite son is to end up in a hole, wrongly accused, in prison, in a land far away. And then once he comes out, once prominence touches his life, and once he ends up in Pharaoh's court, his brothers show up. And it would have been well within Joseph's ability to look at his brothers and say, Ha ha, you've come right into my hand. 
And he could have called the temple guards and had them murdered on the spot for throwing him into a hole. And in some ways, we'd read the story if it were written like that, and we'd go, ah, makes sense. Got what they, got what they deserve. But what, is, what does Joseph do? Looks at his brothers and says, guys, don't cry. What you meant for evil, God's meant for good. Come on in. That's the cross. It's to take the blessing that's in your life and to give it away. And then there's David, completely unseen by his own family. When the prophet comes over, his father doesn't even invite him in. Why? Because he's that unimportant in his own house. But he's seen by God. And the prophet anoints him as a king only when he's 16. Shortly thereafter, David goes out, kills the giant, becomes famous. For the next 16 years, David runs away from Saul. In fact, things had gotten so bad, David ends up in a cave, fearing for his life. Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself. David thinks, here he is, delivered into my hand. And he cuts a corner of his robe without Saul even knowing it. Now, if David had taken his knife and shoved it into the back of Saul and killed him, we would have read the story and we would say, makes sense. God was coming to him. This guy threw spears at a young boy who was only 16 years old playing harp. Got what he was coming. But David didn't. Cuts a corner off. Lets him go. Blesses him the rest of his life. David's heart is smited for even cutting the corner off. And then later, when Saul and David's best friend are killed, and everyone else in Saul's family is killed, only Mephibosheth is left. And David says, come and sit at my table. Even though your whole family has hunted me down. That's the cross. See, the truth is this morning is that he's actually made you a child. For everyone that believes, he is called children of God. And so he's made you a child. And he hasn't just made you a child, but he's made you free and he's made you blessed. And he's made you a child who is free and blessed so that you'd have actually something that's valuable to offer. It's the crazy part of the gospel is that he takes people who have nothing, he gives them everything so that you can give it back away. See, freedom isn't for foolishness or flaunting. It's so that you can have a clear mind and it's so that you can be sober and it's so that you can see clearly and then begin to move with God to set others free. And at the moment you begin to move with God to set others free, at the moment that you begin to take up that ministry, at that moment, that's when the cross is laid upon you. When you have everything and you begin to give it away to people, especially people who don't deserve it, that's the cross being laid upon you. And the cross is the ultimate riches given away. The cross is ultimate freedom laid aside. And the cross is having it all and then becoming poor. Verse 33. Heck of a, heck of a verse. Jesus is crucified between two criminals. Here's the picture I want you to see this morning. Jesus crucified between two criminals. Jesus, the high king of heaven, the son of God, beloved, rich, his father's favorite, hung between two of society's worst. Freedom laid down. And then verse 34. 
Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And then almost a throwaway line, it says, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And so Jesus, the favorite son of God, high king of heaven, so rich, has his last possessions taken from him and gambled away, losing even his clothes, hung naked on the cross. Jesus, the favorite son of God, high king of heaven, so rich, now so poor, not even a garment to his name. You see, he became poor so that you and I might become rich. This is how that kingdom of heaven thing works. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that the one who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, followers of Jesus are those who are laughing, but they're laughing with tears in their eyes. And then in verse 31, Jesus says something really interesting. He says, For if people do these kinds of things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? And what he's really saying is this. If this is how they treat the innocent, what will happen to the guilty? You see, as beloved sons and daughters, we should live with those words resounding in our ears, knowing that countless numbers of people all over the world are drying out right now. If this is how they treat the innocent, how will they treat the guilty? We should let those words run deep into our heart, knowing that countless numbers of people all over the world are drying out right now. And that our life, the part that we receive from God, is the sap of heaven running through our veins, beating in our heart, filling up our lungs. And we have it, not, jo- not just so that we might escape the fire, but we have it so that we may have some sap to offer people who are drying out. Verse 35. In Jesus we see that salvation comes by laying down. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him and they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. In Jesus Christ we see that salvation comes by laying down. We see that in the kingdom of heaven, weakness is actually strength. It runs counter to everything we believe. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it says that God reconciles the world by not counting their sins against them. He could have. He could have, well within his rights. But he chooses not to count men's sins against them. And in doing so, he chooses mercy. In the kingdom of heaven, mercy triumphs over judgment. In the kingdom of heaven, silence triumphs over argument. In the kingdom of heaven, losing triumphs over winning. And in the kingdom of heaven, giving over receiving and weakness over strength. Jesus on the cross saying nothing. Jesus on the cross having insults thrown at him. Jesus on the cross, life laid down, strongest, God's favorite son. Mercy over judgment, silence over argument, losing over winning, giving over receiving, weakness over strength. And these are things we need to hear in America. 
These are things we need to hear in America. You are a beloved son of God. You are a beloved daughter of God. And you will never win by winning. You will only win by losing. The point of life is not to, is not to get. The point of life is to give. The point of life is not to win every argument. But the point of life is to be, is to be quiet. The point of life is mercy rather than judgment. It's actually weakness over strength. And for his weakness, Jesus was mocked and he was accused. And they said things like this. If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, why don't you go ahead and save yourself? Come down from that cross. Sounds a lot like the devil. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was in, in the wilderness, the devil says, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If. And so the people who were around Jesus' cross They had assumed a certain thing about the Messiah. And their assumptions about the Messiah ended up clouding their hearts and they caused a profound blindness to come upon them. So much so that even though the very Son of God was in their midst, they thought He was a criminal. Why do I bring it up? I bring it up because oftentimes our assumptions about God blind us to the realities of God. And that's for everyone in the room. The people who were around Jesus that day, the people who were around Jesus just hours before, a couple things you need to know about them. They had the scripture. They had prophetic promises. They had prophetic promises about the Messiah. And when I say they had prophetic promises about the Messiah, what I mean is they knew the prophetic promises about the Messiah. And when I say they knew the prophetic promises about the Messiah, what I mean is they had them memorized. You can have the Bible memorized and miss the Lord. Why? Because assumption and presumption about the Word of God will always blind us to the reality. God promises. God promises. And then nearly always He will deliver on His promise in a way that surprises. When God promises, we should take it to the bank. And we should avoid presumption and assumption at all costs. In Luke chapter 4, after Jesus tangles with the devil, he gives a sermon and people are blown away by his sermon. It's the first sermon he's ever given. But shortly after being blown away by Jesus' sermon, the people begin to ask a question. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the guy who built cabinets? Isn't this the guy that built the kitchen table? You see, sometimes what we already know about Jesus ends up blinding us to what we need to know about Jesus. Sometimes what we've experienced in God actually becomes a blinder to the next thing that we will experience in God. The people around Jesus on the day that he was murdered expected a Messiah who was a victor and a miracle worker. They were right, but their expectations and Jesus' own previous ministry blinded them to the victory and the miracle that was being wrought right before them. And so you might ask, who can see? Whose eyes are bright and clear? This is the most shocking part of the whole story. Who can see? Whose eyes are bright and clear? 
Only one guy in the story. The thief. The criminal. And because it's the thief, and because it's the criminal whose eyes are bright and clear, it's actually an indictment. It's an indictment on the religious. It's an indictment on those who go to church. It's an indictment on sons and daughters. Sons and daughters who are rich and free. It's an indictment on those who are filled with prophetic promises, who have put prophetic words in their journals. It's an indictment on those who have been filled to overflowing by God. Has God promised you anything? Of course He has. And He will keep all of His promises. But we should live with an expectation and avoid presumption. Because the kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom where favorite sons often look like common criminals. It's an upside-down kingdom where weakness is actually eternal strength. It's an upside-down kingdom where silence is a thundering prophetic declaration. And it's an upside-down kingdom where the blessed and the rich and the free are called to give it all and become despised, poor, and convicted. It's an upside-down kingdom where there are few guarantees, but the same spirit at work. I've got good and bad news this morning. God is absolutely faithful, and there is no guarantee in life for anyone. In Luke chapter 23, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is on trial, and the people call, and they clamor for Pilate to release Barabbas. And so Pilate is released a murderer and an insurrectionist, a criminal, goes free and Jesus goes to jail. It's actually an awesome part of the gospel. It's that the gospel work is beginning to be released even before Jesus goes to the cross. It's that the guilty and the wicked are going free and they're going free because the Son of God is going to jail. It's awesome. But there are no guarantees Because at the end of the chapter, it's a thief on the cross right next to Jesus who has clear eyes and an open heart who recognizes the Son of God when no one else did and he died that day with Jesus right beside him. There's no guarantees in life. The freedom of the Lord may work and set you free from jail. You may go free. Things may get unspeakably better in your life or things may get unspeakably more difficult things may change or things may not change but the good news is that Jesus is in it all and he's right next to you and there's a promise of paradise for even people whose circumstances do not change see we we want to embrace a gospel where there is no cross we want to embrace a gospel where things only get better I'm here to tell you things don't always get better You could live 80 years and things may not get better. While your next door neighbor may be set free, tons of money, everything go right, and everything goes wrong for you, and God can be in both of it. And don't confuse what I'm saying. Jesus didn't put this criminal on the cross. If your husband gets sick and dies, 
It's not Jesus who made him sick and die. Jesus isn't shoving suffering in anyone's life, but there are no guarantees in life. The one guarantee is that Jesus will be in the midst of it all. Why am I bringing it up? Because it is so easy for us to become offended at Barabbas going free when we stay on the cross. We'll become blinded by what God has done in one place and miss what he's doing and, and, and we'll not see the Son of God right next to us. We'll see him as a criminal. People all over the world see the Son of God as a criminal. Why? Expectation and presumption gone amok. Holding, God's, holding God to standards that are irresponsible. If God has made you a promise, he will deliver. How he delivers, who knows? Sarah never imagined that she'd be 100 years old and pregnant. When your promise arrives, it'll come in a way you never imagined. If you've got it worked out, if you've written it down in a journal, you should go find your journal. You should rip that page out and burn it up. You see, the call this morning is to be careful about judging the work of God and to be careful about how things appear. You just might miss the point. Because the freedom of God is a multifaceted diamond. Don't let one side of the brilliance blind you to the whole stone. You see, in the kingdom of heaven, his disciples are those who are laughing with tears in their eyes. Sometimes paradise is hanging on a cross right next to Jesus, hurting but healed. Wounded and sinful, but bandaged and forgiven. See, we're laughing with tears in our eyes. This morning, if you can't laugh, there's good news because good news because there's joy for every single person in the room. And if you haven't cried lately, there's also good news because crosses are still available. And by the way, in this life, the cross will come in one of two ways. You can either pick it up or you can have it laid upon you like Simon. I believe there's a reward for people who pick it up. Jesus has a crown that no one else can, can wear because he picked it up. No one took his life. He laid it down. And so this morning, as the vineyard, as followers of Jesus, we're people who are laughing with tears in our eyes. You want to know what a true disciple is? A true disciple is a son or a daughter whose heart is filled with laughter and whose eyes are filled with tears. The work of the cross is already being released all over the earth. And it makes us laugh. brings great joy. But the work of the cross is not finished. And so Jesus lays that work upon his own disciples, those who are courageous enough to come and follow him. And it is a heavy burden It'll bring tears to your eyes. Those disciples of Jesus who are always laughing, I don't trust them. 
those disciples of Jesus who were always crying? I don't let them influence me either. The truth is, even now, until Jesus returns and his kingdom comes in fullness, we live in the brackish waters like a river that has run out to the sea. Fresh water into the ocean. And we stand in the gulf. And some days when we dive down, we get a mouthful of something sweet. And then other days we dive down and we open up our eyes and it's mostly salty and we come up half blinded and face full of tears. Stand in the brackish waters where on one side it's sunfish and bluegill. And on the other side it's great white sharks. We cast our line out. Never knowing really what we're going to catch. But we can live with the assurance that Jesus is right with us whether we catch a great white or a bluegill. See, the call this morning is to be a follower of Jesus and to step out of the crowd and to come in with him even to the place of pain. In a lot of charismatic churches, they're trying to get you to jump in the river. I'm trying to get you to jump out of the river. I'm trying to get you to come into the gulf, into the brackish waters where real life actually exists. If you've only laughed, Jesus is calling you out to where the pain's at. If you've only suffered, Jesus is calling you in for a good belly roll. Amen? Amen. This morning, there's probably a person or two, I won't presume, there's probably people in the room who have never stepped out of the crowds and become a follower of Jesus. And you need to do that. If you've never done that, if you've lived life on your own terms, maybe you even grew up in a family where they acknowledged the Bible. Maybe your grandmother even read you the Bible. Maybe you even went to church, but Jesus was just never real to you. He was just someone on the periphery. If you've never become a follower of Jesus, why don't you do that this morning? And Why don't you begin that process just by standing up here in the room just acknowledging the work of God anyone thanks Greg Amen. anyone else Greg, we want to pray for you afterwards, okay? All right, why don't the rest of you stand up? Put your hand on your heart. Let's just wait on the Spirit for a moment.
Spirit of God, we wait on you this morning. Spirit, we invite you into the room and we invite you to come and do a deep work. Spirit, for those of us who have only experienced <clears throat> the pain and the trial, God, I ask that you would, that you'd come blow through like mighty wind even right now and that you'd begin to release joy that makes no sense. From the inside. Rivers of living water. And God, for those of us who have assumed that being a son and being a daughter simply meant preferential treatment, both now and forevermore, God, I ask that you would come and give us the courage to pick up the cross that awaits us. God, I ask that you would give us the courage to come and embrace a lifestyle of giving everything we have away, even to people who don't deserve it, even to people who would most likely waste it. God, I ask that you would come and awaken the true passion of Jesus in us. Even now, God, would you give us courage? God, we want to be not just a part of the crowd, but God, we want to be true disciples. God, we want to be disciples not unlike Peter, James, and John. And Father, we say even as a, a corporate body this morning, God, where you go, we will follow. Wherever that is, God, where you go, we will follow. Now, Spirit, I ask that you would touch our hearts, touch our minds, anoint our thoughts, form Jesus. In the name of Jesus, beloved Son of God, favorite Son of God that you could mistake for a criminal, the Son of God who takes criminals and makes them sons and daughters. We ask it in your name. Amen.